This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome to Episode 2 of the StatCast Podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Big show tonight. We've got Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports. We're going to talk Giancarlo Stanton. We're going to talk defense. We're going to talk common fans. And we're going to talk player health. We'll have Ben Lindbergh from Grantland, who's written two big articles on StatCast over the last few weeks. One that just came out today is about perceived velocity. And keep an eye out on MLB.com for something for me about how to catch Billy Hamilton stealing, featuring James McCann, who will be featured on the Friday night MLB StatCast Showcase, Tigers and Yankees. Jeff Passan, welcome aboard. Thanks for taking some time with us. You're definitely going to mess up StatCast podcast one of these times, aren't you? <laughs> you know, I wonder why we have it two words. You know, StatCast, cast, maybe is sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, my son called Don Wakamatsu, Don Makawatsu. And we... <laughs> And we tried to, and we tried to say Wakamatsu Makawatsu like five times fast, and it is impossible. Hey, you know, it's almost even funnier that way, I guess, coming from a young child. Yeah, he's seven years old, <laughs> and, and he knows his Royals very well. Well, so, I, I uh, think he's going to be very pleased uh, in the middle of July, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he's he's going to rather uh, rather enjoy that game. I think. <laughs> I'd love to talk about John Carlos then, and I could spend probably 15 minutes talking about all the incredible stats we have here on him, uh, but I won't. I'm just going to focus on one. There are He has hit 30 balls with an exit velocity of 110 miles an hour. Every single other team combined has fewer than that, except for the Angels, which is you know amazing to me. Seven teams don't even have eight, and he's got 30. And so what I wanted to talk to you about is obviously we've always known for years Giancarlo Stanton crushes baseball. Now we've got a way to actually put some metrics to that in a, a real tangible way other than just look at this giant guy crushing baseballs. And I know something you're working on is getting a little bit beyond oh, he hits the ball hard. How does he do it? Yeah, uh, how does he do it and, and why is he capable of doing it better than anybody else? Is it just the fact that he is this – Six foot five, two hundred fifty pound Leviathan. Well, no, because there are other guys out there who are six foot five and two hundred fifty pounds and don't hit the ball like him. Uh, is it the fact that his swing is faster than other guys? No, it's not the fastest swing in baseball by any means. Does he happen to to hit the ball? Uh, on uh, you know a fatter part of his bat than anybody. There are so many questions out there, but to have this quantified, that's the, that is the true beauty of Stackcast, and why when this system came into existence, I was so excited because all this time we could say, yeah, Giancarlo Stanton hits the ball really far, but now we actually have something to measure it by. And something to back it up, and, and more questions that we can ask and investigate, and look into the physics behind it, and uh, look into any number of areas that try and give us a greater breadth of knowledge about these numbers. And you know, numbers by themselves are great, but numbers with context, 
make us smarter, better fans. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned physics because, you know, as you said, lots of guys are strong. You know, Chris Davis is strong. Yasiel Puig is strong. Is Stanton stronger than them? You know, who knows? But clearly there's something he does different, and it sounds like it's going to be related, you know, maybe to backspin, maybe to, to launch angle. And I think that that's kind of the thing you're trying to get at. Yeah, and, you know, I remember in spring training standing with Theo Epstein uh, on the backfields, and we were talking about Chris Bryant, and the angle of Chris Bryant's swing creates the sort of backspin that very few players do naturally. And I think that's probably the case with John Carlos Stanton as well, uh, but it's one of those things where uh, when you look in the numbers that StatCast has and you can see the average launch angle and you can see – uh, you know, it's not just launch angle. There's this sweet spot that I noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed, where it's launch angle plus velocity, and it accounts for a home run like every time when you get it. What is it? Somewhere between 20 and 30 degrees and 90 plus miles per hour, it is going to be a home run, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because Stanton has the single hardest hit ball of the year. It was 120 miles an hour off the bat, but it wasn't a home run. It was it was a single to left field because the launch angle was something like, you know, 10 degrees. And fortunately for the left side of the Dodger infield, they didn't try to get in the way of that. <laughs> I, it's scary to think like when you see a guy get hit at 95, like that's painful. Imagine standing. I mean, what's a third baseman stand? 90 feet away and you know, a ball coming at 120 miles per hour, it seems to me like even though it's 30 further feet, it would be probably almost every bit as fast, if not faster, getting to the third baseman than in a roll this Chapman pitch would be getting to the plate. It's interesting you bring up Chapman because, my, you know, my former colleague at Fangraphs, Jeff Sullivan, he's referred to as Stanton as the Eraldus Chapman of the batter's box. Because if you look at the hardest thrown pitches, it's just Chapman, 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 Chapman. And it's kind of the same thing for Stanton. Of the seven hardest hit balls this year, he's got five of them. He's got two of the top three. I mean, he leads that leaderboard in just about everything. Who else is up there? I know Carlos Gonzalez has had quite a few hard hit balls this year. I, I, I just assume Bryce Harper would. You know, he's, he's actually somebody I plan on looking into soon because he doesn't. And I think part yeah. of that is because he's got some bunt singles in there. Um, I don't have the data <laughs> to back this up, but I'm guessing he's got no middle ground. I, I feel like he either misses it or just completely crushes it, and that kind of brings down his average a little bit. Yeah, and, the, you know, the, the fun part about this is just trying to suss out what what the reality is here. And I was looking forward to Sackass more, frankly, because of, uh, the defensive elements and, uh, you know, trying to understand what is happening on defense and why it's happening. But the, the exit velocity stuff, uh, you know, we heard for, uh, you know, a couple of years that the Mets picked Lucas Duda over Ike Davis because his exit velocity was higher. Well, Ike Davis wasn't a slouch by any means in exit velocity, but I think that was the first sense we got of uh, what these numbers really could provide. And, uh, seeing Stanton really separate himself from the pack, I think, has been one of those illuminating parts of the 2015 season. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you brought up defensive metrics, and we'll get to that in a second, but I, I think that that's probably what people are most excited about. But what we've really gotten the most utility from right now is exit velocity uh, and spin rate. And, you know, you mentioned that yeah. Lucas Duda was selected by the Mets partially because of his exit velocity. And now we've seen the Astros select Colin McHugh based on spin rate. And I, I think that those are real-world examples when people say this is cool, but what's the, what's the meaning of it? And we can say, well, teams care. You know, teams are using this. They're making big league decisions based on this stuff. Yeah, I, I remember highlighting a kid named Tom Zapucky who was picked by the Mets. Uh, and if you look at the perfect game events for the past few years, they've had TrackMan there, and you're able to see guys who have 
excessively high spin rates on their pitches. And, uh, you know, sometimes you think spin rate uh, is going to be a good thing. I still think there's work to be done, though, on figuring out exactly how important it is. I just know that there tends to be uh, a correlation, at least, between spin rate and effectiveness of a pitcher. You look at the spin rate leaderboards, generally speaking, they consist of pretty good pitchers. Now, is it a causative thing, or what is the causation there, or uh, how is it? How does it work on both the top and bottom ends? Uh, that's the mystery, and that's the excitement, and that's why teams employ, uh, you know, hordes of quants to try and figure out all this stuff through this army of data that we have now. Yeah, you know, there's there's myriad applications beyond just who should we have on our team. I, I think you'd probably agree that the next big breakthrough in baseball is going to be the team that figures out how to keep their pitchers healthy because the Tommy John epidemic has just been running through the game. Uh, you've written on that extensively. I know that you have an upcoming book on that subject, and I'm interested in your take on how this technology can be applied to this. I know recently you talked about Prince Fielder, for example, who missed most of last year, obviously not a pitcher, but came back and showed great exit velocity. You know, Is this the kind of tool that we think can help keep players healthy or at least have teams know when their players aren't healthy? You know, it could be. There, there are going to be so many different ways that in the future I think we're going to be able to, to look at guys. I mean, I think nanotechnology is going to be an enormous thing, and, and it could even be something as, as creepy as it sounds, you know, the implantation of uh, a tiny little device on an elbow, which could be done through injection. I mean, it, it could be something that's remarkably simple. Uh, for now, we have something like Kinetrax, which the Tampa Bay Rays are installing in their ballpark, and it gives real-time analysis of pitchers uh, biomechanically as opposed to the sort of stuff that you've seen in video game motion capture suits or at the American Sports Medicine Institute in a lab setting. And so that's really exciting. But what this does is, uh, you know, StackCast can, can tell us uh, the differences between outings. And if a guy's curveball has significantly less spin on it one outing or another, uh, or one outing to the next, all of a sudden you can look at what uh, his arm angle was and you can look at what his release point was and you can try and track differences uh, you know, in areas that we wouldn't have known even five years ago. And that's the exciting part of it, is that we have so many different data points now, it's just going to be trying to find stuff in all of the noise. And there will be a lot of noise. That's what makes it so difficult. And that's why there are so many people in baseball working on it these days. Now, speaking of trying to pull signal from the noise, let's move on to defense. And I know, <laughs> so last year you had somewhat of a public, uh, but, but friendly and constructive discussion with Dave Cameron from Fangraphs, uh, kind of had competing articles. And I think you appeared on their, their podcast about the value of, maybe not the value of, but the accuracy of defense in wins above replacement. Uh, and I think that, you know, both sides made some very good points. But I think one thing that we might be able to do better now is to nail down defensive positioning, because I know a lot of players say, mm -hmm. well, this guy was 10 feet closer to the line than I was. You know, he had a hard, easier time getting to the ball or a harder time getting to the ball. This might be the kind of thing where we can say, well, he ran, you know, this many feet or this guy is the average leader in running to the, getting the ball. And that might sort out some of the issues we've had with, for example, is Alex Gordon the best outfielder in baseball? 
Yeah, I think that is enormously important. But then the problem is if we're doing that on defense, you know, not every single is the same, for example, on offense. So do we give more credence to harder hit balls? And, uh, you know, how do we separate those things? I, I understand why uh, the, the crowd that is in favor of the current defensive metric stands up for them. Uh, it's better than what we had. But what Sackass can do, I think, is give us such good context and such a greater ability to really appreciate the, the differences in positioning and the uh, you know, the amount of time it takes someone to run one place to another, uh, in the types of throws that guys can make, in the distances from which they can throw. Uh, you know, we see Andrelton Simmons scoring high in the current defensive metrics. It wouldn't shock me if with StatCast and with new metrics that are developed, if he scores even higher because of the ridiculousness of the throws and of some of the plays that he can make. And seeing Lorenzo Kane as I do in Kansas City, cover as much ground as he does in the outfield, the number of strides that he takes to get there. I mean, there was a play last night, for example. You know, Gerardo Parra made what looked like an incredible catch in center field. I mean, it was twisting. It was over his head. It was one of those beautiful-looking catches. But if you saw it from, like, the previous five seconds where he took just a dreadful angle to the ball and really twisted himself into making that catch, is it as good of a catch when we put it in that context that he took a suboptimal angle? I don't think it is, and knowing who takes those great angles and who takes the, the, the difficult ones, uh, I think that gives us a much better sense of who is the superior outfielder in that situation. Now, I think if you were to tell a player who made a great diving catch that, yeah, it was a nice diving catch, but it could have been real easy if you didn't take forever to get there, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be very happy about that. And I know that you know, you're in the clubhouses, you're talking to players, you're talking to executives. What have you heard about this new technology? We know that some players haven't really been very apt to keep up with some of the new metrics, and now this is even a step further than that. Yeah, I think that it's going to take a while to get into clubhouses and front offices. Obviously, I think they're excited about it, and I think they feel like the the applications for it can be huge. And it's just a matter of which team is going to come through with those breakthroughs first, and how they're going to be manifested out on the field, and what we're going to see from them. I mean, we're, look, we're already seeing uh, a massive amount of shifts this year. Uh, even more than there have been in the past. And we're seeing things like like the way the Tampa Bay Rays have been using their pitching staff this season has been incredible to me. And is there some reason that the Rays believe that bullpen games work and that taking pitchers out after – you know, two times through the lineup is a vital thing. Is there something beyond what we already know? Uh, we're going to see different things like that in baseball because that's where we're at in the game today. You know, different strategies work, and once they work, other teams are going to copy them almost instantaneously. So in preparation for this, I went back and I read uh, one of your earlier StatCast columns. I think it was about uh, a great catch Yasiel Puig made here in New York last July. It was one of the first mm -hmm. StatCast videos. Uh, and the comments to that article weren't always favorable. It's like, what is this? I don't quite understand it. Why does this need to exist? You know, is that something that you've found difficult uh, in reaction to the items you've written about this, that the common fan maybe doesn't quite understand what, what the use is going to be of this? Well, if we're being honest... Uh the comments under Yahoo Stories are, are perhaps the, the – hmm, what's the, what's the kind way to say this? <laughs> I, 
I think the kind way to say this is that they're the worst thing in America. <laughs> so let's discount this right there. Well, to be diplomatic I, about it. <laughs> uh, my, you know, I think my father is a better example. My father, I'd like to think, is a reasonably intelligent person, and he wants nothing to do with this. And my father was actually a sports writer, worked at the Cleveland Plain Dealer for 42 years, so he is someone who I would like to think would want this sort of knowledge. But it you know, I don't know if it scares him. I don't know if it overwhelms him. I don't know if it's just the simple idea that people want their games to be games and that games are supposed to be something that are enjoyed uh, from a purely, like, basic level. And that a lot of times when I write about metrics, because I have a different audience, than fan graphs, and I have a different audience than baseball perspectives. Sometimes when I write about metrics, you know, the response is not good. It's it's why I I have been accused many times of being Mike Trout's secret lover, because people, you know, people read what I say that Mike Trout is not just a better player than Miguel Cabrera, but a significantly better baseball player than Miguel Cabrera. They get really, really angry and offended about this because Miguel Cabrera is the embodiment of the old-time baseball player. Hey, believe he me, wins. I am I am fully on board with the fact that Mike Trout should be the three-time defending American League MVP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll get no argument from that here. But the way I look at this is that it's there if you want it. If you're really interested in the stuff, there's just endless amounts of writing about it on the internet. And if you're not interested, you know, you can still enjoy the game the same way you've always enjoyed it. Yeah, but let's let's be honest. There has been, I, I think, there's been like an implicit pressure on mainstream media, not to turn into a, a media criticism here, but I think there's been an implicit pressure from the sabermetric media on mainstream media to adopt these things in their writing, and those who don't get shamed by it. And so all of the, you know, much of the writing that was done by old school media members and uh, by mainstream media uh, in the past has been washed away, and, and the proliferation. Of, uh, of metrics and of wins above replacement and other things of that ilk have, have really uh, accelerated in the last five years and I think maybe turned some baseball fans off. And to those baseball fans, I say, get with the times, guys. Like, <laughs> this, this is where we are. We're, we're in a time right now where uh, knowledge is not just power, but it's pervasive in baseball. And this is a great time to be a fan of the game and enjoy what we know and what we have. I think that's uh, a perfect way to put it, isn't it? It's, it's just a great time to be a fan because of how much more we know now uh, than ever before. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure is always mine, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports. Look for his book coming out uh, next year sometime, I guess, Jeff, about pitching injuries. 2016, April 5th, it will be called The Arm and... Uh, I promise you will enjoy it, or I'm not going to offer you your money back, but I promise you you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. All right, thanks. With me now, Ben Lindbergh, staff writer from Grantland, formerly editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. Ben, how are you? Hey, how are you? I'm great. Great. Thanks for being on with us. Ben, you've written two long and uh, great StatCast articles at Grantland recently. Um, the one I think that was interesting when it went up in April was asking a whole bunch of questions about what you hope to find from StatCast. And you didn't necessarily know the answers, but I, I think that's kind of part of the appeal, is that it's not so much about turning this thing on and knowing everything we want to know, but now having the opportunity to ask new questions that we could never ask before. 
Yeah, and just to establish a precedent here in episode one, all guests on this podcast receive a, a lifetime all-access pass to StatCast, right? That's how this works. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not my call to make, but we'll see what we can do about that. Um, yeah, well, I was very excited to get my hands on any of this, and I've been happy to just get a peek at a, a couple of different areas that the system covers. And yeah, initially, I was looking at the batted ball data since some of that actually started to surface in the first week of the season somewhat unexpectedly. And I was hoping that we could use that eventually to kind of develop a, you know, context-neutral uh, or, you know, results-independent measure of how good hitters have been just based on how hard they've hit the ball and where they've hit the ball. And not so much on, you know, did there happen to be a fielder in place to catch that little blooper that wasn't actually hit that hard or, you know, vice versa, since there are guys who for a couple months at a time or an entire season at a time can just happen to place their balls in certain places where fielders aren't and they can look better than they maybe deserve to be in a sense. So I think that has helped, you know, even a couple season, a couple months into this first season of that cast, it's sort of reflexive that, that is one of the first things I look at if I'm trying to decide if a hitter is for real or not. You can go to a leaderboard, and you can see how hard guys are hitting the ball on different batted ball types. And, and, you know, we don't have all the information yet, and we don't know exactly what it means, but we get a good sense of, you know, that hitting the ball hard is good. When you look at the leaderboard and Giancarlo Stanton is just lapping the rest of the league, then you get a sense that that's probably a good thing. Whatever Stanton is doing is probably a good thing. <laughs> well, I think you really touched on something there because, you know, the move really to outcome-independent player evaluations, as you put it, I think really means more and more because you're right. It's what did a player do within his control. It's not did he hit the ball where another player happened to not be. And that's kind of the thing I think we've always known is important. And then over the last 15 years or so, it's been about batting average on balls in play. That sort of defines that. But now we can really go beyond that to how hard did he hit it where did he hit it, and maybe even attach a, an expected run value per plate appearance, as you put it. So you said you talked to someone in a front office, uh, and you don't have to name the team unless you really want to, who's put some use into that, and it turns out that that's been pretty useful. Yeah, well, teams have been using this for many years, so it's almost old hat to them. But you hear every now and then a, a story from, you know, the, like the Yankees this year talked about how Chris Young was a guy that they found using this information and, you know, their stat guys were telling Brian Cashman, go get Chris Young because something about his traditional stats aren't capturing how well he's going to do. And, and he's been pretty good for them this year. And you can imagine that there were probably a, a bunch of stories like that, that maybe we just didn't know what the rationale for the move was. And maybe it was that. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're getting more precise measures that, you know, better than the approximations that we used to get. And, and I, you know, I don't want to say that outcomes don't matter. Of course, some, you know, people looking at this and hearing outcome-independent metric might say, you know, outcome is all that matters. You want to get a hit. You want to win the game. Obviously, that's true. And any player and any front office person would take a little blooper that falls in to win the game over a, a hard-hit line drive that, that gets caught to end the game. But... In the long term, maybe the long, you know, the line drive that's hit hard actually results in a hit more often. And so when we are evaluating players, that's what we would want to look at. So you were given access to a portion of StatCast data for your most recent article at Grantland. Uh, and I knew you were writing about StatCast, but I didn't know what it was going to be about. So when I loaded up the article today, I had two immediate reactions. One is that given access to data that few people have, you wrote about a little-known Marlins reliever 
And my second reaction was, I can't believe it. That's exactly who I was going to write about next week. And I'm talking about Carter Capps. <laughs> so yeah. tell me a little bit about how, of all players, you focused in on Carter Capps to kind of, you know, build your story around for StatCast uh, this week. Well, yeah, that wasn't my initial plan. My initial plan was actually to write about Jordano Ventura, who is known as one of the hardest throwers in baseball, but doesn't have the strikeout rate that is usually associated with someone who throws as hard as he did. And I wondered whether maybe his his perceived velocity was not as high. He's not a big guy. He doesn't have a long stride when he gets rid of the ball. And the idea is that maybe he releases the ball farther from home plate and therefore hitters get a better look at the pitch. And even though it's coming out of his hand at 98, maybe it only looks like 95, you know, only 95. And so maybe that would explain why he doesn't quite have the strikeout rate that, that you would think he does. And that actually turns out to potentially be true. He is one of the guys on the bottom of that leaderboard um, who throws, you know, perceived velocity is slower than what the radar gun would say. But Carter Capps is on the other end of that leaderboard, and he's a pretty fascinating story because he has really, since he made the majors a few years ago, he has just seemed to, you know, have like little life hacks for the mound, basically. He's <laughs> experimenting with all kinds of different things, testing the limits. When he first came up, he was just like all the way to the right side of the rubber with sort of a sidearm delivery, just getting as far over as he could to be a, a really uncomfortable at bat for right-handed hitters. And now he's not doing that. Now he has unveiled this hop. He basically he flies. He gets airborne. Uh, he pushes off the rubber and just, just you know, hops down the rest of the mound. And he lands almost with his foot at the edge of the dirt on the mound, which is feet farther, closer to the plate than the typical pitcher. And so StatCast measures this thing called extension, which is just how far from, from the rubber you release the pitch. And his is over eight feet, and no other pitcher is over eight feet. He's like half a foot farther than the next guy, who's Jordan Walden, who is also a guy who hops on the mound. And those are kind of the two guys who hop, and they have the longest extensions, and therefore they have the, the highest perceived velocities. And Caps has been absolutely unhittable this year. I mean, he is getting whiffs on almost half of the swings that hitters take against him. His curveball is getting whiffs on about three-quarters of the swings. And, you know, he's a guy who is big. He's 6'5". He throws really hard even without the hop. He throws 97, 98. So he doesn't necessarily need this. It's like, you know, he's he's exploiting all these, like, little extra edges, and he's a guy who doesn't need to do that. You would expect to see Mark Burley hopping or something, someone who doesn't throw that hard. But the fact that he has done it, in addition to just having those natural gifts, has made him one of the best relievers in baseball thus far this year. And you kind of wonder whether the hop is going to catch on or whether it's going to be outlawed or whether there just aren't that many pitchers who could do it as effectively as he does. Yeah, the, the number from your article that really stood out to me is that the mound for him, it's not 60 feet, 6 inches away. It's it's 52 feet, 4 inches away from where he mm -hmm. lets go of the ball. And obviously no pitcher is throwing from 60 foot, 6 inches because they've all got you know some amount of arm extension in front of him. But he's really slicing off almost 8 feet, as you said, in extension. Uh, for a guy who already throws hard, and that puts him, he's the only one in perceived velocity who now throws harder than Araldis Chapman because he's gaining a couple extra miles on his perceived fastball. Yeah, that's right. He is the hardest thrower in baseball in a very real way, which is <laughs> kind of cool. I mean, we've been saying Chapman, Chapman we've been saying Archimedes, Caminero, these guys who hit triple digits on the radar gun, and he might do that sometimes, but he doesn't do it on average. But 
if you look at the perceived velocity, how hard these pitches actually appear to the batter, which is kind of what matters, he's at 101 miles per hour on average. So it's really fascinating stuff. And, and you don't need StatCast to, to figure that out. You know, he, he generated lots of attention for doing this hop when he came up and showed it off in April. And it's clear what the purpose of that is and what the result of that is. So, you know, it's not a, a complete revelation. And, and that's the thing to keep in mind with all of this new technology and new data that we're getting. Often it just confirms something that we knew already. It confirms some conventional wisdom. And then maybe there are some surprises mixed in. And the surprises can be, um, you know, very illustrative of, of something that maybe we weren't thinking of before. But, you know, for people like us, maybe who, who like the numbers side of the game, even if you understand that that is the purpose of what CAPS is doing, it's still pretty great to be able to put it down to the inch, exactly quantify how far he's getting, how much farther he's getting from the next guy, how much harder that makes his pitches look, because we can't go out to the mound with a ruler and, you know, sense, sense that somehow. So we need something to tell us, and we can actually describe it in numbers, and we can still just appreciate it on an aesthetic level, uh, but we can also analyze it on this deeper level, too. Right, and I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Another guy who stood out, even though he doesn't throw anywhere near as hard as Carter Capps does, is Yumero Petit. Uh, he only throws, you know, 89-ish or so, but he's always been much more effective than you would think by his stuff. And it's his fastballs have occasionally been called, and I'm using giant air quotes here, the invisible, just because right. hitters have always had trouble picking it up. And he's another guy who really rates pretty highly on the extension list that you found. Yeah, and I don't know if it's all extension in his case. It, it's hard to say exactly what deception is. It can be hiding the ball. It can be, you know, having hitters not pick it up because you keep your arm behind your back, that sort of thing. Or it could just even be your delivery, how just unconventional it is. It can be many things that go into that. But I think this is part of it, and this helps explain why Petit, a guy who, yeah, he's lucky to, to hit 89. He's, you know, 87, 88 as a right-hander, which is not normally something that leads to success. But he's been very effective over the last few years, and it definitely seems to have something to do with deception. And, yeah, I mean, when you see a guy like him at the top of the leaderboard, exactly the guy you would expect to be at the top of the leaderboard. It's sort of reassuring. It kind of validates what you're seeing, what this is measuring, and it helps us explain a little bit how he's been able to be effective without what you normally think of as strikeout stuff. But I think you're right that it, it is just one piece of the puzzle, right? Because there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between extension or perceived velocity and success. I mean, obviously, Aroldis mm -hmm. Chapman is up there in perceived velocity, and he's great for a, a variety of different reasons. But it's part of the puzzle, you know, spins part of the puzzle, command, sequencing, you know. It's just another thing that we have to take into account when we're trying to say who, who is a good effective pitcher, who is likely to be a good effective pitcher. Yeah, and one of the interesting things I found is that the, the correlation between pitcher height and pitcher extension is only 0.25, which is pretty weak. I mean, the taller you are, the more likely you are to have a longer extension, a longer stride. You know, you have longer arms and longer legs. That makes sense. But it's definitely not like shorter guys are doomed to have short extensions. It seems to be mostly determined by mechanics. And you can have a guy like Tim Lincecum or David Robertson, guys who aren't big, but they just really stride far and they get as much as they can out of their frame. And that's something that 
potentially could be used as a teaching tool. If you have a, a shorter guy, you know, like Ventura, who is not getting as much reach as he possibly could, then maybe you think about adjusting his delivery a little bit just to get a little bit more out of him. It's it's useful to know that you don't have to be tall to to release the ball closer to the plate. So let's say a month from now you're going to write another StatCast article, and I have no idea if that's true or not. But let's say you do, and you go and request some data. What's the next uh, area of data that you'd really be interested in exploring here? Well, I, I think probably defense is the one that got everyone the most excited and had the most potential, and that's probably still true. And, you know, that's probably the most complicated from a processing and, and analytical perspective, But uh, which is maybe why we haven't seen much done with it publicly yet, but I would love to do something with it. You know, I wrote a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Nick Castellanos, the Tigers third baseman, who by the numbers we had was one of the worst fielders in baseball last year. And this year has been about average. And I, you know, looked at the numbers we have and I talked to him and I talked to the Tigers infield coordinator and got a sense of maybe why he is rating better this year. But there's a lot of uncertainty around around those numbers, and you know, I was thinking at the time it'd be really great if we had Statcast for last season and for this season, and we could compare maybe where his positioning is. Are they putting him in a different place? Is his first step quicker? Because he was telling me, you know, I'm working on my first step all winter and trying to get quicker, trying to have a quicker reaction time. And I didn't really have a way to to quantify that or say, well, yeah, it looks like it works. Last year you were. seconds, and now you're 0.5 seconds, or, you know, whatever. And that would be a a really valuable thing. You know, I'd love to know which guys tend to play shallower, which guys tend to play deeper, and could their positioning be optimized maybe? You know, is this guy fast enough that he could afford to play deeper or play shallower and still get to balls, that sort of thing? So I am available and willing to write that article (laughs) anytime anyone wants to share any information with me. Well, since you brought up Tiger's defense, I'm going to talk about myself for just a second here. This week, I'm going to be writing about James McCann, who has been the catcher there now that Alex Avila has been out. Uh, He's one of the very few guys who's thrown out Billy Hamilton stealing, which is almost impossible to do. So the measurements we have there are pretty cool. We've got pop time. We've got the pitcher release time. And it really goes into the fact that stolen bases don't come off catchers. They come off of, of pitchers. They are based on how quickly the runner got off of the base. It's really a big soup. Uh, and I think that that's something that's kind of always been hard for people to understand, that it's not just the catcher's caught stealing percentage. It's really the, the entire team defense. And so that, I think, is going to be pretty cool when we're able to get more of that data out there. Yeah, it's mostly not the catcher's defense from, from everything <laughs> right. I've read. It's mostly the pitcher's ability to, to hold the runner on and, and the runner himself. So, yeah, I mean, there have been companies that have collected home to first times and pop times and pitcher release times, but that stuff hasn't been public. and maybe hasn't been quite as reliable as it would with an automated system. So the sooner that stuff is, is out there in the public realm, the, the better the understanding of that will be. Ben, before we let you go, I just have to ask a question about uh, why you're in California right now. Usually you live about 15 or 20 or so blocks away from me on the west side of Manhattan, but you're spending your summer in California and you're running a professional baseball team. And unless I'm completely off on this, Jose Canseco has been on this team. And so I'm dying to know how that happened. Well, yeah, I'm I'm standing under beautiful blue skies and sun and a palm tree right now. So it's not like I need a reason to be here work-wise. I could just be here for the scenery. But I am here because I'm working on a book with Sam Miller, a baseball prospectus, tentatively called the Baseball Sandbox. And we are running an independent league team this year, the Sonoma Stompers, a pro team in the Pacific Association. And we're 
sort of, you know, putting everything that we've learned about analytics and scouting and sabermetrics, trying to put it into practice to writers testing themselves with a real team and real players and seeing how that goes. And so far, it's going well. We're 11-1, and one, although it's early. But that's the, that's the basic idea, um, and we're trying to use any stats and technology and information that we can incorporate. And Jose Canseco was actually not our idea, he was more of a, a team promotion. You know, he, was, he sold lots of tickets. People came out to see him and bought beer while they were there. So it was successful for the team from that perspective, but he can still hit. <laughs> he is almost 51 years old, and he hit a home run off a guy who was throwing 90, and he caught up to one of those pitches and blasted it out of the park, and he, he crushed some balls while he was here. So while it was it was mostly a, a publicity stunt, he actually ended up helping us win. So that was nice to see. I assume like any good executive, you and Sam are taking full credit for the 11-1 start, even if you had nothing to do with it. Absolutely, we are, yes. <laughs> and we were prepared to take none of the credit for a 1-11 start. Well, I'm going to be keeping an eye on the Stompers all season long, and I'm really looking forward to this book coming out. Uh, Sam's one of my favorite writers, and you as well. Ben, thanks for taking the time with us. Sure, thanks for having me. Great, take care. That wraps up the second edition of the StatCast podcast. Thanks to Jeff Passon from Yahoo Sports, Ben Lindbergh from Grantland. Both have books coming out in the next year. Keep an eye out for that. Catch you next time.